So full disclosure here, uh, I think I've been getting ready for today's message for about 12 years. Does that sound ominous? I don't mean for it to sound ominous. Uh, if you were to go back in time with me on my personal timeline, about 12 years, you would find me a sophomore in college in a class uh, that I didn't really want to take with a professor that I didn't really like at a college that I wasn't sure if I was going to stay at. Um, and I walked into this class trying to complete my degree, to get my Christian leadership degree, to go get a job in ministry, blah, blah, blah. I had a plan, whatever. Some of it worked out. Most of it hasn't. But it's been, it's been good. And in that class, at the final, there were two things that we had to be able to submit. And I don't know, I guess our teacher just assumed that we were all honest because we were in ministry classes. Uh, I wish that was a safe assumption. Unfortunately, I don't think it always is. Uh, we had to do two things. One, we had to sign a very short piece of paper, full-size piece of paper is what I should say, but the blank was short at the bottom. We had to write down whether or not we had completed a book that was assigned to us. And if we hadn't completed it, we were supposed to write in the blank the percentage that we had read, and then that would be our grade, like for the whole class, like whether or not we finished the book. Yeah, you can see the instant temptation to write, not 100, right, because you don't catch on, 96%, I mean, I skipped half a chapter, right? I ran out of time. That's the way we kind of negotiate. A little bit of commentary there on your own righteousness and pursuit in your own life. So we get to the end of this, and this book we're supposed to read is by a guy named Richard Foster. You may have heard of Richard Foster. He was a big deal in certain evangelical circles as far back as the 60s and 70s. And by the time I arrived in college in you know, the mid-2010s, uh, he was sort of an old, kind of a guru-level teacher in certain Christian circles, and he wrote a book, he wrote many books, but the book that he wrote that we needed to deal with in my class was called The Celebration of Discipline, which includes two words that, frankly, had not necessarily marked my Christian life up to that point. I had not done very much celebrating. I was typically in a room like this, worshiping somewhat against my will, because my parents made me or whatever else, and there wasn't very much discipline. Uh, I had great intentions, as you often do, for about 90 minutes after the service would end on Sunday, and then I, I never made any plans, my schedule never changed, I didn't actually do any work to integrate any of the things that I had heard on Sunday morning, and so that was a novel concept for me. So I read the book, uh, I wasn't a huge fan initially, to be honest with you, and I don't even think I was qualified to have this opinion. I thought the book was a little idealistic and naive, coming from a 19-year-old at a private Christian college, I don't know who I thought I was. And then the second part of our final was we had to memorize, and this was the hard part, if you will, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, all three chapters. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you probably, as soon as I say that, you're thinking, oh, that's the Sermon on the Mount, and you're right. It's a mountainside sermon that Jesus gave to a group of people that were um, seated around him in which he summarizes much of what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And honestly, if you were to do a little bit of digging into church history, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is one of the most uh, challenging parts of Jesus' teaching to interpret, not because it's unclear. There are other parables, other places that are much harder to understand, but because we don't know what to do with it. Jesus describes things in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that feel so alien to our experience. Even people who have spent a majority of their religious energy in Christian churches, we read some of the most basic tenets that Jesus lays out, and we go, yeah, right, Jesus, not in a thousand years. Jesus talks about things like if a person goes after you physically and tries to attack you, that instead of defending yourself or running away or calling the authorities, you would simply present the other half of you, the part of you that hasn't yet been harassed. It's mind-blowing. And so what do we do? Oftentimes we do a lot of gymnastics and we try to turn that into something that we could do and then we teach everybody that's what Jesus really meant. There's a lot lost in translation. He didn't really mean turn the other cheek when that's what he said. He said to turn the other cheek. 
so on and so forth, right? You've heard different parts of this teaching in the past. Jesus talking about cutting off hands, gouging out eyes in order to take sin seriously and pursue a life of righteousness. So as a 19-year-old, this is what I had to do. I had to read a book that was designed to get me to take my faith seriously, and then I had to memorize probably the peak, the gold standard sermon of the Son of God himself, and I think my teacher's attempt was to see my life transformed. But unfortunately, it didn't stick for me. Just like you've probably heard those passages of Scripture preached many times, and you've probably heard sermons about things like fasting or prayer or why you should read your Bible more or the presence of silence and solitude in your life or other things that we might consider to be spiritual disciplines, if you've heard that language before. It's easy to disqualify those things as maybe too mystical or maybe too far outside of our Christian experience. That's what I mean by mystical, just sort of like, I don't know, don't, shouldn't we just read the Bible only and that's enough for us? So that's what I did. I was a part of a sort of theological tribe where it was easy to dismiss those things, and, and I went about my life. I, I fudged my way through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I memorized just enough to pass the class, which I am certain is not what Jesus had in mind when he preached that sermon originally. It was my knuckleheaded 19-year-old self using that to get a C so I could graduate. But if you fast forward eight years, that's about how long it took before my wife and I arrived here in Alaska. And for the first time in my life, I was not sort of second in command in a ministry position. Um, most of the time that I'd spent in ministry, I was doing a lot of administration for people that were better communicators than I was or uh, had more vision than me or were more established in whatever position they were in. And by way of a bunch of circumstances that I think were very clearly God at work in my life and my wife's life and the life of this church that I can't get into today, uh, it was kind of my first opportunity and really it wasn't even an opportunity as much as it was a responsibility that had been given to me by God. The way the whole interview process went and the nature of the way that this church called us to come and, and lead uh, was really unique in my life. And I had done almost no jockeying and positioning and negotiating to work my way in the door. In fact, Andy and I led with some of the things about us and our family in the interview process that we thought might make the church look the other way. And yet, we connected. We gelled. God was in it and he brought us here. And so for me, for the very first time, now I had the title of lead pastor. Ooh. Yeah, the, the front dog on the sled team, man. Yeah, we're all pulling, but now I, I'm expected to be the visionary. I have to be the executive to some degree. I mean, at that stage, three years ago, where we were as a church, the way that we did things internally was very different. The size of our church was very different. The number of programs and activities that we were involved in was very different. And, and I felt not an unhealthy pressure, but I did feel an additional responsibility. And so part of that responsibility, as many of you know, I'm, I'm looking at your faces in the room, you've done this with me before, part of that responsibility is, is meeting with people. It's taking time to sit with people and to counsel them, to hear what's on their heart, and then to try as best I can to unpack from God's word a solution, or even just some commentary on maybe that stage of life or that issue, and, and to provide, try to pre present what God would say about that thing. Here was my takeaway. My takeaway was that there was this common thread, a thread that I would have never anticipated, in the life of, and this is going to sound like hyperbole to you, but I mean it truly, in the life of every single person that I met who was 45 or younger, within my first three years of ministry here at True North, common thread, was that these people, you people, people like me, love Jesus and want to follow him. That's why you're here today. I think that's a big part of what draws you into this church, is we spend so much time talking about Jesus, but... In spite of loving him and wanting to follow him, many of us do not know how to do that. And here's the kicker. We have no plan to find out how. That's where the money is. It's not just that we haven't been equipped. We could argue that that's somebody else's responsibility in our lives. 
if I go to my, take my driving test and I fail miserably and drive my car through the driving test uh, facility, through the wall, I could maybe blame my instructor, right, for not teaching me which pedal was gas and brake. But if I go to take the driving test, having never asked anybody to help me learn how to drive a car at all, and then I drive through the side of the building, that comes down to me, frankly, not really even caring how to do it the right way. It's wanting the results without wanting to invest in the life that leads to those kinds of results. And I think that that's honestly a big part of the way that we do Christianity. But I don't mean that to be an indictment against you. I think it's a natural conclusion. It's not a surprise to me because look at our lifestyles. Are we spending very much time at all taking the problems that we have and looking for real practical answers within the life of Jesus? Or if I can zoom out from that a little bit further, have you ever even thought to do that before? When you open the Bible, do you actually believe that the life that Jesus lived 20, you know, 100 years or so ago, do you think that actually has anything to do with how you pay your bills and get your kids to soccer practice and work your way through your undergrad classes? You might not. And I don't think you would be that uncommon if that was the case for you. Oftentimes, many of us, and I would hear this story again and again in these one-on-one meetings that I've had across the years, we may have had a spiritual mentor, I certainly have, or even a person who was sort of a spiritual advisor, maybe a small group leader in the past, or somebody who played an adult role in your youth group experience as you were growing up. Oftentimes, these kinds of people with a little bit of spiritual authority will introduce the idea that we should be praying more than we are. I doubt that's the first time you've ever heard anybody say that to you. Or that we should be reading more of our Bible, or maybe we should try to memorize a verse of Scripture once in a while, right? But even in those cases, when I was meeting with real people, and this is, I'm just telling you from my experience here as your pastor, even in those cases when people had the right idea, no one who I met with knew how to do those things in a way that would be effective. Their, their plan, when I would say, that's great, like we we're having this conversation, this person's sharing how bad this dating relationship has gotten, they love the other person, but they're scared to death about the future, and they're not on the same page, and I would say, well, what is God telling you about this? And they would look down, and kind of, you know, well, you know, I, I know in the Song of Solomon that, you know, the, the hair of the woman is like the hair of a goat, and so I've been trying to compliment my girlfriend's hair and hope that that maybe draws her back in. And I mean, you, they, you know when you're saying that, that's not the answer, and it's certainly not the point of that verse in Scripture. But isn't that kind of what we do? It's like grocery shopping without a recipe. We just walk through the store of the Bible and we go, ah, that looks pretty good. We'll put that in the cart. That looks pretty good. I'll put that in the cart. And then you go home and you put all that junk in a pot and maybe all of it's good and healthy and right on its own, but collectively it doesn't do a lot of good for you. When God wrote the Bible, when he inspired people to present his plan, his story, redemptive history, all of the words and works of Jesus, he did it the way he did it on purpose. He laid out for us a kind of life that if we will embrace will be so different from anything that we can put together on our own that it will result in a word that we use all the time at this church, transformation. It will turn you from what you are into something fundamentally, essentially different. So what did I do? I started digging. That's why I can tell you that this began for me over a decade ago. I started trying to find an answer. I thought, is it just true north? Is this a shortcoming of me? Is it potentially something that's a product of previous pastors of this church in the way that they taught or led? I tried to dig into those things. I interviewed people. I called my friends who were pastors in other parts of the country. 
And I said, hey, here's what I'm feeling, here's what I'm dealing with. You know, there's the same three or four sort of Christian books that when I give them to people and they read them, it seems to totally change their perspective on Christianity. And yet, from the Bible's perspective, these concepts seem like they're very basic. What's happening here? What have we missed? Why are we maybe malnourished? That's the way that I began to feel that we must be almost as a generation. I called my ministry mentors who are 20 and 30 years down the road from me. And I said, is this a millennial thing? Is it a Gen Z thing? Is it where I grew up in the Bible Belt thing? It doesn't seem like that's the case because we're in Alaska. And then I tried as best as I could to pull in other pastors from Alaska as well. And ultimately, (laughs) I could not find what I was looking for. To be frank with you, I couldn't get an answer that would allow me to preach a three to six week sermon series and maybe give you a solution. It seems like there is a much larger to the point of, I'm using a word that's overused in our media the last three years, but there's sort of an epidemic, if you will. There's something that we've all sort of caught, it's contagious, we've caught it from each other, and it has caused our perspective on who Jesus is to be warped. I don't actually think most of us believe That when Jesus said to do certain things a certain way, that's really what he meant for us. I don't think so. And you might say mentally, yes, I, I would say that that's the case. When Jesus says do, we should do, absolutely. But we've turned all of Jesus' commands into shoulds. Does that make sense to you? We aspire to them instead of simply putting on the life of Christ and going for it. Which, granted, is not as simple as I've made it sound in that short sentence. Here to me is the ultimate problem. If I can just zoom out for you, this is what allowed me to go all the way back 12 years, to remember Richard Foster's book, to pick it back up off my shelf, to go back through my notes and to read it in a way to try to understand how to follow Jesus in combination with Jesus' teaching. Here's the conclusion that I reached about what's missing in our discipleship. When we meet Jesus, you and I, today, we are almost always taught how to avoid sin. That's not a bad thing. That's helpful and good and right. If you're a parent, that's half of parenting, is telling your kids what not to put in their mouth and what not to touch with their bare hands, right? But we are almost never taught how to follow Jesus. We get half of it, and we tend to get the negative half. That's why I titled the slide Negative Discipleship, because we learn how to be a Christian mostly by way of how not to be worldly. And there's a lot of books about that, and there's been giant movements and youth culture about that, and there's a lot of songs about that. But I don't think we really have a grasp on 2,000 years of rich church history that would instruct us in what to add to our lives in order to follow Jesus. Here's why I think that's the case. We are scared to death of legalism. Nobody, nobody wants to ever qualify to be labeled as a legalist. We think it's the worst possible thing you can be. It's not good. We certainly shouldn't be that way. But believe it or not, grace-oriented people who want to follow Jesus still have to take real steps and make real choices. And I believe fully in my heart that Jesus has made those steps clear. I think they're actually a lot more practical than you probably think that they are. And my intention, beginning today and the nine weeks that follow, is to try as best I can to demonstrate to you from the Bible why there is a hole in your discipleship and how Jesus himself fills that hole, him alone. No strategy, no book, no big program. This is not the launch of some rebranding of a process at True North Church. We are gonna do what we have said we are about from the beginning. We are gonna focus down on who Jesus is and we're gonna learn from them how we change because that's what we need. Now, if I can zoom out again a little bit here, I wanna try to pull you into sort of what you may have heard about, if we can talk about spiritual disciplines a little bit, what you may have heard, what you may have experienced, and what's really out there for you, the full buffet of what's available to the believer. If you are, like I am, 
a product of either an evangelical church, so you were raised within a church that would consider itself to be evangelical. I don't care what denomination it is. We all kind of are a product of the same movement. So if you were brought up in that world, your mom and dad were part of that church, maybe you were born into it, whatever. If that's the case, or if you were saved as a result of what I would call the evangelical movement. So if you were saved at a church event, believe it or not, that's a relatively new concept in church history, that the church would have an event like VBS or a revival or somebody came to your college campus and hosted a debate and you heard an atheist get his rear end handed to him by some smart Christian and you thought, great, I'm on board with this. If there was some version of an outreach that led you to come to Christ, then very likely you were given at most three tools in your toolbox to follow Jesus. And here they are. The first is what we call a quiet time. Now, at face value, time with Jesus every day is the very bare minimum of what you need to follow him. You have to do it. You've got to be with him daily. So I'm not here to knock that concept. What I am challenging is you being handed a Bible without being taught how to read it and told that you need to separate yourself from the people around you in a quiet space and then God will do the rest. I had a friend uh, who, who had a buddy of his in college who was saved at a big event, and in response to that, he took a Bible with him after he was kind of counseled at the stage of the big Christian concert. He took a Bible with him into his room. Uh, he waited till his roommates were gone to their classes during the day, and he would just sit in a chair in the middle of the room with the Bible, like, on his lap, closed. And his friends would come in and say, what are you doing? And he would say, I'm trying to have quiet time. They told me if I have a quiet time, I'll, this, is how you, this is how you do it, right? This is what God wants? Well, it's a little bit of what God wants, but it's not bearing any fruit in his life because nobody's counseled him. Nobody's walked with him. Nobody's instructed him. Oftentimes, when we do this, we do that grocery version, that grocery shopping version of, uh, of, of Scripture reading. We, we just randomly open it. You've seen people do this before. You've, you've probably heard people talk this way in your life group from time to time. I had this big decision to make, and my Bible fell out of my purse, and it was open to Job 23.40, and it said that uh, wise people keep their mouths shut, and so I decided not to say anything, and my life got better. Mm, God can do what he wants in your life. That's great. That is certainly not the best way to study the Bible. Oftentimes, misapplied scripture is just as likely to lead us away from Jesus as it is toward Jesus. So simply doing this sort of unguided, untaught, unexplained, whatever you want to call it thing is not going to be the following Jesus lifestyle that we're looking for. And let's be honest, if you're an adult and you live in Alaska, you're going to get up and drink coffee anyway, okay? Adding a little Bible to it in the morning is not necessarily the sum total of following Jesus for all of your days. But if you were saved like I was in an evangelical church like that, you were probably told, start doing this. Not how to do it, not when to do it, not how long to do it. Probably no one invited you along to their quiet time because we're fiercely independent And we wouldn't want anybody to invade that space. Otherwise, somehow it doesn't count, right? On God's big whiteboard in heaven, we don't get our check that day. So we don't do a lot of teaching, okay? Number two is prayer, which again is good and right when done according to the Bible's prescription. But in my life, what this looked like was reciting the Lord's Prayer. And then sometimes I would even cross myself. I don't even know how to cross myself. I'm not Catholic, but it's what everybody else on the football team did. And I thought, boy, if I don't do this and the other team wins, I'm going to feel like it was probably my fault. God gave them the victory down there on the goal line because they, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be. I mean, you would, these guys would say the Lord's Prayer in the end zone and then they would curse like sailors for 90 minutes out on the field and attack each other and want to kill one another. And anyway, so it can range from that, right? The Lord's Prayer, sort of like an incantation before you do a thing that feels significant in your life, all the way to repeated instances of praying some version of what you might call a sinner's prayer every time you sin. 
a total misunderstanding of your relationship such that you feel that God is looming over you and you're guilty all the time and you can never be clean enough and so you just keep getting saved. You see this in youth groups and kids' ministries all the time. A kid comes to camp every summer and they confess Christ all over again and they're like, I gotta get baptized this time, it's real. And six or seven years of that in a row, you start to go, something is missing here. We are not doing this Jesus way because Jesus' disciples did not need to be baptized again and again and again. They did not need constant annual assurance of their faith. There was something about following him that was markedly different from the way that we seem to be doing it. And then tool number three, and I say this in jest, though I can count on, it would take me 10 minutes probably to think of all the instances of that I've actually seen this done. The third weapon in your arsenal, you're sort of saved out of the evangelical movement, you get a Bible, you're taught to pray, and then they hand you another thing with your Bible. Anybody know? A journal. They give you a journal, right? Because you were already processing your emotions and thoughts with perfect handwritten prose before you were saved, so you obviously know what to do with a journal, right? No, a journal simply becomes the way that you track your failure as a Christian again and again and again. Dear God, it's been nine months since I wrote in this journal. You're on page four. You've had this journal for nine years. It's been nine months since I was with you, God, and I'm so... And so you write till your hand cramps, and then you, like, scratch out amen with the last little bit of juice in your hand, and then you feel better, and so you quit doing it, which is the indicator that it's not really doing its job in your life. I believe that that's about as far as most of us know how to go in our walk with Jesus. And we might believe, whether we would admit it with our mouth or not, the way that we're living might demonstrate that we think that an on-again, off-again, hot gold prayer life mixed with some choose-your-own-adventure Bible study and a handwritten record of our wrongs is the sum total of what it means to bring God's kingdom to the earth. Feels silly when I say it that way, doesn't it? It's a little bit convicting. Yeah, this is the problem that I kept seeing. This is not news to me. I don't really think it's news to you, but I doubt that you've been offered a solution. I think Jesus gives us the solution. I think that for most of our evangelical churches, though, we're not interested in that as much, and so instead, everything past those three tools in your tool belt is kind of up to you. It becomes your responsibility to do the rest. So, and and I guess maybe I should give some credit where it's due too. You might also have a classroom education sprinkled on top of that, right? You might go to something called a discipleship class that's about a lot of information exchange and, and maybe now you're smarter about Bible stuff or somebody teaches you a Hebrew word and you feel really good about that. But for the most part, that's about all that we can offer you. The church knows how to give you knowledge. We know how to defend the validity of the Bible. We even know how to persuade you into trying to pray your way out of hell. We're very good at that. But I'm not convinced that we know how to help you actually do the things that Jesus actually said to do. But that's the point, right? I mean, if it's all about Jesus, that's the point. And if it's not the point, it should be the point, right? I mean, shouldn't it be good and right for me to be restless if I'm getting anything less than that from the church that I'm a part of? Shouldn't it be good and right for me to be frustrated, for me to want to find a solution if my life group meets consistently and we never actually talk about how to do the things that Jesus said to do? What is the value for me if my entire existence, if my very breath is sourced in Christ alone? What good is it for me to do things that do not get me to him? To be single-minded, right? We sing about this all the time. We talk about an audience of one. You've heard this language. That's all good. It's great. I think we're probably too used to it and it's cliche. But if it's really happening, we should be a lot more upset than we are. 
Because we're reading books that are about a lot of other things than getting to Christ and following him. And we are spending our time in groups together doing a lot of other stuff than trying to follow Jesus together. We're scared to death to confront each other's sin. We don't feel that it's any part of our business at all to offer somebody else an objective perspective on how their life is going, whether it's good or bad, or to invite them into any further obedience. Again, because we're scared of legalism, and frankly, we probably aren't practicing those things ourselves. So, what do we do? If this is as big of a problem as I've taken 17 minutes to try to convince you it is, and I believe that it is, how do we fix this? What can we do? Because we live where we live. We live when we live. We have already been discipled, if you will, by things that may have been less than helpful to us. I think the only solution is to go back so that we can go forward the right way. We have to be willing to climb down the ladder that we've spent our lives fighting to climb because maybe it's not the right ladder and maybe it's not taking us where we thought it would. And we need to start with Jesus, I believe. I truly think if we will look at his words and take him seriously and as literally as possible, we will begin to understand the differences between what he meant when he said, follow me, and what we think a life of following him actually consists of. So I'll ask you, because I don't know all of you personally today. I don't know if you've ever had an encounter with Jesus or if you've ever even been to church before. Who is Jesus to you? In church, we sing about him a lot. You heard a couple of different names that we use for him in the songs this morning. We certainly believe he's the son of God. That means if we go theological here, that he's the second person of the Trinity. We have Father and Son and Spirit, all one God together, yet separate persons who coexist and are in constant and eternal relationship. Jesus fulfilled the office of what was called the Messiah in the Old Testament, what the Greek people and the Greek language calls the Christ, same meaning, the coming king that God would send to fix the wrong that starts in Genesis 3. Essentially, the culmination of the whole Old Testament is Jesus' birth, the first Christmas. But here's what's interesting. If you open any of the four Gospels in the New Testament to chapter 1, verse 1, and in just a minute we're going to go to Mark 1, but if you were to do that, nobody in those opening chapters of any of those Gospels knows anything about Jesus. They don't know he's the Messiah. They don't think he's the Christ. Certainly, several of the Gospels open with his genealogy, his lineage, but that's written back into the story. At the point that the narrative begins, nobody knows what to do with him. His mother feels pretty certain she does. His dad isn't even sure until he has a vision. There's a man in the temple in Luke 2 who gets pretty excited about Jesus, and then he just goes back to being a normal nobody for a long time. And when he first approaches ministry, when he first goes to the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, when he first stands in the synagogue in the book of Luke and reads the scroll of Isaiah and tells people you've heard this fulfilled today in your presence, they do not immediately think, oh, that's God. Right? Like there's, just like you and I, we don't have a category for sometimes we meet a human and that human is also God. We don't know. It's not like, oh, that she has blonde hair, she has brown hair, she's God. Uh, she has tattoos, he likes chicken wings, he loves to eat salad, he's God. We don't, we don't view people that way. Same thing in the time when Jesus lived. So the people that lived with Jesus, his peers initially, did not view him as the coming savior of the world, here to set everybody free. They viewed him first for what he was, a rabbi. So that has to be our starting point. Now, you and I are not Jewish. Maybe you are ethnically, but if you're in a Christian church, I can only assume that you're at least a Messianic Jew. We don't have a lot of Old Testament history to back this up in our own training and our own lives. So if I can, I want to just quickly, briefly try to explain to you what the word rabbi means and, and to prove, if I can, that Jesus is willing to be approached that way. 
I'll give you this statistic. I don't have time to read all these verses to you. But in the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, there are about 90, you could argue 90 to 95 times that Jesus is approached by another person. And he has a conversation with them. And we have record of those things. 60 of those, so two-thirds, give or take, the beginning of that conversation is a person addressing Jesus as rabbi, or depending on your English translation, the word may be teacher. But if you see teacher in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the Greek word that's being used there is a retcon from Hebrew, that's the word rabbi. The people who lived with Jesus primarily spoke Aramaic and Hebrew, and they would have used that title, that old, old word, to address Jesus and to instantly communicate to him the respect and honor that they wanted to show him and the office that they thought that he occupied. Aside from the encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, there is no other record in the Gospels in which Jesus seems to have any issue at all with being called a rabbi. To the point that when Jesus begins to call his disciples, disciples, when he begins to use that word, he's leaning into a cultural norm that existed before he was ever around. And I don't even know if you know that. You know Jesus didn't invent discipleship, right? There had been disciples long, long before Jesus walked the earth. It was a common tradition in the Jewish world, but it started probably in the Greek world. You're familiar with certain Greek philosophers. Oftentimes, they would disciple one another, and they would pick up the mantle of each other's philosophy. It's sort of the beginning of what we call epistemology in the West. The the theory of thought requires multiple lifetimes to make any real progress, and so you have to pick up the research of the guy who just died, who was your guru, or in the Hebrew world, your rabbi, and you have to try to take it to its next step and then hand it off to somebody who comes after you. When Jesus reaches out to his disciples, he does so as a rabbi. He's he's working in a framework that already existed for him in the first century in Jerusalem. And that matters to you and I, and I know some of you are yawning, because the point of anything that we label discipleship in 2022 is to help us to follow Jesus, right? You would say that's the point. I don't want to do anything that's called discipleship. I don't want to memorize verses or go to a class or get up at 5 a.m. and read a book with some other people. I don't want to do that unless it's going to get me to Jesus. Okay, that's good. That's the right objective. But if Jesus was a rabbi, and then if he referred to his followers as disciples, then it stands to reason that in order to follow him, we need to see him as our rabbi. We need to see ourselves as his disciples, and we need to know what that means in the context in which he started it. Unfortunately, we've read a lot of our 2022 concepts about education back into the discipleship process in the West today, but I believe what Jesus had in mind is much more personal and much more hands-on. So we need to reset. We need to reset our understanding to the most basic level of what it means to follow Jesus, what it actually meant for the 12 men who gave their lives away to follow him so that we can try to live and walk as he lived and walked and not just settle for taking all the steps that other people have told us we should take which is oftentimes the version of discipleship that we settle for. So we'll go to God's word in Mark 1, beginning in verse 16. Jesus is walking. He's going to call some disciples out. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, who was the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. And they did this because they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men or people. And immediately... These two men left their nets, and they followed Jesus. And then going on a little farther, Jesus saw James, who was the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat, also mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed Jesus. A chapter later in Mark chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus went out again beside the sea. So he does a lot of walking next to the water, and all of the crowd was coming to him. They've now realized who he is. And he was teaching them. 
And as he passed by the water, having this sort of walking lecture beside the sea, he saw Levi, who was the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And Jesus has, he makes eye contact with him, which is a thing that most people would not do. And he said, follow me. And Levi got up and he followed Jesus. Now in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to himself those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out in order to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Verse 16, he appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, who was the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, uh, doesn't matter, which means sons of thunder. Uh, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, who is the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and also Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then finally, Mark chapter 8. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, this is famous, famous verses, you probably heard this, but try to focus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake, loses their life for my sake and the gospel's sake, will save their life. For what does it profit a person if they gain all of the world and yet they forfeit their soul? What can a person give in return for their own soul? So what is Jesus asking these followers to do? If this is the starting point for us to really reevaluate what it means to go with Jesus into the life that he has for us, what is his evangelistic strategy, if you will? Did you hear him lead anybody in a prayer at an altar? No? Was there any mention of heaven or mansions of gold or some kind of reunion with all of the disciples' dead relatives someday? No? The only promises that Jesus made at this point, at the point that he called his disciples, was that they would, one, belong to him as his disciples— that they would, too, behold him, they would get a front row seat to his astonishing life, and three, that they would eventually become like him. That's what he says. He says, I will make you into someone you are not. You are currently a fisher of fish. I will change you fundamentally into a person who can fish for the hearts of people. He says in chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter three, uh, that part of his intention is to train the disciples that he might send them out to preach. That's verse 14 of Mark 3. And in addition to preaching, that they would have enough spiritual authority, a thing they don't have as fishermen naturally, that they would be able to command demonic spirits to depart from people's lives. He's going to teach them to do a thing they don't know how to do. That's not like uh, class 103 in fisherman school is how to exercise demons. These guys don't have this experience. They are not able. They don't have any idea how to begin. And Jesus says, if you will come with me, a product of coming with me is to learn to do what I do. How good does that sound, disciple of Jesus, in 2022? What if there was actually a plan, a set of things that you could devote your life to with the belief, the full assurance, that by simply practicing these things, the proximity to Jesus that you would gain would change you into a person who could do what he does? Is that appealing? Is the idea that you would become a person who could bring the presence of Christ into the lives of everybody you touch, does that excite you on any level at all? Because if it doesn't, then that's probably where we should start, is our understanding of what is grace and what is mercy and what is our call to be involved with people around us in the name of Jesus. 
If we can talk briefly, and I, I mean this, I'll be brief. If we can talk briefly about the concept of a disciple, the Hebrew word for a disciple is Talmudim. It's based on the Talmud, uh, or what we might call the Torah today, the first five books of the Old Testament. A Talmudim was a person who we can often translate as a student or a follower, uh, but it's different than the way that we interact with those concepts today. So we think of a student as maybe somebody who takes really good notes, uh, or we think of a follower as somebody who receives all of uh, somebody's notifications on social media. What we're talking about when we say Talmudim is probably best translated in 2022 as apprentice, uh, as a person, almost a, an intern. Intern, I know, means like low on the totem pole, but a person who's willing to spend a ton of time with an expert watching what they do, doing it with them, talking to them about it in a way where they begin to be able to replicate the actions of the master teacher, in this case, the rabbi, in our case, Jesus. To follow a rabbi was to apprentice under a rabbi. And I think oftentimes our Western idea, this is where our concept of discipleship begins to fall off, is our idea of discipleship is simply to gain the knowledge of our rabbi to know what they know. If I could just know what Jesus knows, if I could know what the pastor knows, if I could know what my professor, my life group leader, my Bible study leader knows, then my life would be better, right? Right? Has it worked? Sometimes, in certain cases, the knowledge of God is good, it bears fruit. But just knowing more stuff is insufficient to transform the life of a person. What we need is Jesus' concept of discipleship, where we are trying to become just like him, and as a result, be able to do everything that he did. In order to apprentice under Jesus, we cannot only study him historically, we must experience him personally. So to that end, study and knowledge are not wrong, and I'm not here to attack or tear those things down. I'm simply trying to say to you, we are doing really well with about 30% of what's available to us. I don't think we need to kick those things to the curb and throw all of our attention at something new. That's just going to swing us to the other extreme. We need to slowly and methodically add in the life of Christ to the knowledge of Christ that we have. So, for a Talmudim, the apprentice of a rabbi in the first century, there were three main goals in play, and I want to just quickly hit these, and then we're going to land the plane. The first was to, be, to belong to the rabbi. To have been chosen by a rabbi is a very high honor. We miss it in the book of Mark. It feels very automatic, right? Sometimes we don't miss it. Sometimes we go, why would these men drop their nets and leave and never come back? Well, in some ways, maybe a better way to understand this would be like being chosen to be on American Idol, having never had to sing for the judges before. Just getting a ticket in the mail that says, hey, you got to get to L.A. tomorrow, and you're going on live TV. Some of us would be like, never in a million years. This is a scam. I'm not doing this. Others of us would be like, just not even going to pack a bag. I'm going to go immediately and jump in headfirst to this opportunity. There's that kind of draw for these men when Jesus approaches them and says, I want you to follow me. I want you to be my disciple. It was a very high honor. And typically, for a disciple of Jesus... Uh, or a disciple of any rabbi in his day, you would need to be a very skilled student to come out of a very rigorous schooling process in that community. And these fishermen are not a product of that schooling process at all. So there's an undertone to the kinds of men that Jesus called as his disciples initially that can be lost on us. Jesus did not go after highly educated men with soft hands and big egos. He went after blue-collar men who worked with their bodies, men who were forgettable, who were easily overlooked, and who were remarkably ordinary. And to those men, he said, come and do a thing you never thought anybody would ever offer you to you. Follow me. I'll be your rabbi. You can be my Talmudim. And then when he called them, he makes his choice known. He does so publicly where the stakes are very high. To be brought into a rabbi's chosen few apprentices was truly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and one that working-class men like Levi and Peter would never have had with any other rabbi. So the first goal was to belong. The second was to behold your rabbi, to watch him up close, to be aware of all of his habits and his principles and his choices that made him able to do what he did. 
You would need to see those things in a way that the average person did not see if you were going to truly emulate his lifestyle. I don't know if you guys have been up on any of the latest podcasts or TV shows, but I think about everybody that I've met is now aware of uh, Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes. Anybody? You saw the ABC special, you heard the podcast, it came across your feed, there's like a million, there's a Hulu show, there's a Netflix documentary. So if you don't know, Elizabeth Holmes was this brilliant scientist, young lady who dropped out of school and decided to try to build a product that nobody else could come up with. And instead of actually building that product, she just lied for a long time and made a bunch of money and then they caught her. That's like the short version. So if you haven't seen the last episode, bummer. They do get her at the end there. But it's like the greatest modern American story because it checks all three categories of modern American entertainment. It is true crime, right? It's a medical drama, and it's a courtroom drama. You get all three. That's like the only TV shows that anybody watches anymore. One of the most interesting things about Elizabeth Holmes was her mimicry of other people. If you follow her life, and all the documentaries love to get all into this, there is a clear point in her trajectory where she willingly changes her own voice in order to be taken more seriously, to become less like who she is naturally and more like who she wishes she was. And then she ended up reading, I think it was uh, Isaacson, what is his first name, who wrote Steve Jobs? Walter, yeah, Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs. She read it, and she immediately started doing all the stuff Steve Jobs would do. She bought the same kind of car. She hired as many people as she could from Apple. She started wearing black turtlenecks. There was a joke in the Theranos offices that her employees could tell what chapter of the book she was on based on how she would act in the office that week. Now, I'm not at all trying to tell you that Elizabeth Holmes is a good model for how to live your life, but she's probably the closest thing we have to a true disciple in 2022. It's offensive though, right? Our idea of discipleship is not that I follow Jesus, it's that he would follow me around and he would be into what I'm into and he would help me with the stuff I've already got going on, right? And we have this sort of weird fetish almost with like being real and raw to the point that we just embrace immaturity as normal, especially in our small group context as Christians. But to follow Jesus is not to hope that Jesus just makes us a a better and purer version of who we already are, it's that he would fundamentally transform us into himself. That's the goal that we would become more like each other over time because we become more like him. That's the objective of a disciple. So to behold your rabbi is necessary if you want to do that. And then I think I've already made this clear. The third idea is that you want to become like him. The point is this, church. The antidote to our inability to follow Jesus, to actually do what he actually told us to do, begins with understanding what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. And so that's what we're going to do. Today is just an introduction to some of these broad concepts. I'm not going to get down to brass tacks yet, but the long-term plan for us, it's probably going to take us three or so years to finish this, so I'm telling you that right now. I hope that's not shocking. I hope it's exciting to you to know where we're headed, is beginning in the fall, after this transition to the other campus is totally done, we are going to begin alternating between the book of Mark, taking it verse by verse, as most of you are used to, my preaching style. We're going to do that for six to eight weeks, and then we're going to tackle what might be called a spiritual discipline, an activity from the life of the church in church history that if we will practice it is guaranteed to increase our proximity to Jesus, to focus us onto him so that we would eventually become like him. These are not magic spells. They are not pills we can swallow and instantly our lives will be changed. They are opportunities. But we're going to do this thing because I believe that the problems that we have are solvable by Christ. And all I want to do is get you into his presence every day. I want you to get to the point where you really bring your problems to him, where you really ask him what he thinks, where you know how to listen and hear when he's communicating with you, when you gain the ability to exercise your gifts and play your role in the church, that we would actually become who Jesus actually wants us to be.
And so for the next nine weeks after today, we're going to stay in sort of this umbrella introduction series. That'll be the duration of the time where we're split apart into different campuses. When we get to June, we're going to do a four-week series on unity out of Ephesians uh, to kind of do a redux of where we were in Ephesians two years ago, just to kind of help bind us together by the Spirit's power, one church all together. And then after we're done kicking off in the fall in August, starting in September, we're going to jump in with our first spiritual practice, and you're going to hear from me every week from the stage specific practical ways that the Bible instructs us in how to not just eliminate sin, but to add things in in order to follow Jesus. That's where we're going to go together. So I want to pray that way for you, and then we're going to be done this morning. God, thank you for your word. I hope, Lord, that as we see the way that you called your first disciples, we are intrigued to a certain degree. That our takeaway this morning might be something like there's a marked difference between the way that you seem to call your disciples and oftentimes the way that we introduce people into the life of Christ, as we might call it. I pray, God, that you would give us boldness and faith to challenge some of our presuppositions and assumptions about how a person lives a Christian life. I pray, God, that we would hold very loosely things that might be secondary or tertiary as we work through this process and that we would cling tightly to you and to what your word says explicitly. God, we love you. I'm excited. I hope that we will be able to do this journey together, God, and that you will move us from people who know much about you to people who have become just like you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.